when you look to businesses today and you think of compassion, American capitalism in particular has no compassionate bedrock. There is no compassion at all. There is no soul. You look for the soul of business. You look for a soul in business. And particularly in American capitalism as it's practiced today, there is no soul. There is no feeling of connection to anything other than the profit. And there's no life there. You know, it, it is so disconnected to a life-affirming process. The making a profit for a business is the secondary purpose of business. And the work that we do addresses what I think is the primary purpose of business, which is to create value. The purpose of the primary purpose of business is to uplift the quality of life on the planet. Period. That's Blaine Bartlett. And this is the emerging future. Welcome to the Emerging Future Podcast, everybody. I am your host, Joel DeYoung. This is the podcast where we go long form and we get to hear wisdom from the curious, compassionate, and courageous co-creators of our desired and emerging future. Oh, I need—I think I need to say that twice, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> today, we get to talk to Blaine Bartlett, which was crazy amazing conversation i was like manic going out to blaine's house to go talk to him about this because i just read his book and um it's it's completely profound and and totally relevant and everybody should read it because it reframes everything about our culture and you know how you have those feelings like why why are we calling ourselves consumers why why do we think of ourselves as just like we we need to buy more and why do why do i feel like there's no end to this yeah well blaine helps us reframe the paradigms that we're working with and and gives us a new way forward to reimagine the future that we want and that's what this podcast is all about the emerging future what is it in the future that we can imagine our present to be and how do we make that our current reality so um, Blaine is an amazing guy, and this this conversation was uh, it it was all over the place um, in a great way. Um, we we talk about personal things. We talk about his house. We talk about his book. We <laughs> we talk about his dog. I think <laughs> a little bit, um, but uh, uh, Blaine Blaine has so much. Wisdom to share, so I I won't bore you with a long-winded intro beyond this. But if you do want to get a hold of me, you can find me um, at most places. My handle is uh, my first and last name J O E L D E J O N G Joel D Young on Twitter, Medium, Instagram. Uh, shoot on over one of those and say hi. And if you feel inclined, head on over to iTunes and write a review and just let iTunes know that you appreciate. The Emerging Future Podcast. So, all right. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here is Blaine Bartlett, the international bestseller of Compassionate Capitalism. 
thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. This Absolutely. Is, this is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> I, it's a good location to have a conversation. Oh, it's beautiful. So we're sitting out on Blaine's um, deck that he built. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that he built. Um, we're on Whidbey Island, and we're looking west over uh, the Salish Sea. And is that the strait? That's the Straits of Juan de Fuca out there, and uh, Port Townsend is you know, just right in front of us here. Where's the lighthouse? Uh, lighthouse is just you know, between those two boats. Oh, it's right you, you there. You can see the white building there, and that's... That is where I proposed to my wife. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Get out of here. Yep. That's great. Yep, I took her out there, and you know they have, like, the barracks and stuff yeah, around yeah, there? Yeah, yeah, Fort Worth. So I had the ring in my pocket, and we were... She, she was like, let's go play in the in the barracks, and it's, like, all dark down there, and I was freaking out, like, I was going to drop the ring, and, she, and she's like, oh my gosh. why don't you want to play with me? Oh, that's romantic, me? yeah. Yeah, so then I... I uh, I took her out to the. I'm like, I want to go out to the lighthouse. So I took her out to the lighthouse, and we we're we we're the only ones out there. And then I proposed to her, and she said yes. Now, how long ago was that? Um, that was in 2000. 2000. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. we were married a, a year later. That's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Now, and you know, yeah, some of the history of Fort Worth. I mean, Officer and a Gentleman was filmed there. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a romantic history, yeah, to that. I'll have to watch that one again. And then these are, so that's Fort Warden, and and there's a triangle, isn't there? Yeah, there's a triangle. uh, Fort, uh, uh, Casey's right over here. Oh, there's Casey. Okay. And the uh, third one is, yeah, up in the the San Juans. And there was, and there's another fort down here, but there was a triangle, you know, in the shipping lanes here. Yeah, to protect. Yeah, to protect the the shipping lanes. from... The Japanese you really? know, during World War II. Okay. Yeah, that, that was the design. Interesting. Now those are all open to the public. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the caissons are <laughs> long gone, and the ammo lockers you can rumble around in. And this is beautiful. And the uh, the ferry, what's that ferry? Is that That's that's the uh, Coopville, Port Townsend Ferry. Okay. So it comes in right over here. It, uh, it, it's not, it used to be called, um, uh, uh, I want to say Kingston. It's not Kingston. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, changed the, they changed the name to uh, Coopville, the Coopville Port Townsend Ferry a couple years ago. Okay. Yeah. But uh, it comes in right over here. It's a smaller yeah. boat. Yeah. Yeah. The, those are uh, much smaller than what you'll find on the, uh, the major routes. It's a car ferry, though. It is okay. Yeah, yep. Can you see the ferry that goes from Port Angeles up to Victoria, or is that too far away? That's too far away. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. On a clear day, though, and you, you know that little saddle that you see you know, right over here on the right-hand side, we can actually see Vancouver Island. Can you really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I notice you have a boat. Yeah. Um, do you do you guys zip around the islands around here? Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll take it out and uh, get around. You know, this year, I mean, the fishing has been horrendous this year off of Admiralty Inlet. I mean, it's been closed all season, which is unfortunate. Uh, I can fish south of here or north of here, but I can't fish here, which... Yeah, what do, do they have a reason for that? Is it? I'm like sure they do, but uh, it, it, it wouldn't make sense to me, but I'm sure they do. <laughs> they, them. <laughs> yeah, because, uh, I mean, I, I, I enjoy fishing very much. Yeah, Yeah. it's peaceful. Yeah, just, yeah, just to get out and kind of... There's two things. Yeah, there's fishing and then there's catching. I enjoy the fishing part. The catching just kind of comes with it sometimes. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, it happens on occasion. Yeah. So do you, do you eat the fish? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, salmon. Yeah, I, I typically will catch and release because you know, I'm an avid fly fisherman. Are uh, you? Yeah, and that's all you know, catch and release for me. But uh, do you fly fish out of your boat? No. Or, or you Here, it, it, this you know the, the salt water is. I mean, that one I'm going to eat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, but I have I have fish flies out here. I mean, there's a cutthroat run, you know, that can mm. you know, moves through these islands, and uh, uh, and I'll do that from the shore. And um, fly fishing it happens on the rivers too. Right? Oh yeah. So is yeah. that where you like to go? Or? Yeah, yeah. The the uh, the Yakima is a good river. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I'll just yeah, I'll, I'll typically take at least one, maybe two trips, you know, into the Midwest, uh, you know, Colorado. Uh, yep. Montana, fish the Yellowstone, the Madison. Mm -hmm. uh, I've done a little bit of fly fishing in uh, around the Aspen area. Yep, the American River and Uh, in that area. Upper frying pan, I think. Upper frying pan, yeah. Um, Yeah. I floated the Yakima once. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was great. I really liked that. Oh, the Yakima is an amazing trout stream. Hmm. It's world class. It it really is. Um, Man, you're taking us over... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I started fly fishing back in the late 60s uh, on the Umpqua River, the North Umpqua River. Zane Gray wrote about some of the waters I fished. Where is that? Uh, Roseburg, Oregon, the the mid-Willamette Valley, and then you kind of head uh, head a little bit bit east. There's a watershed, the Umpqua, the North Umpqua, Uh those those rivers. I I actually grew up on the, uh, the North Umpqua. You did. So yeah. you grew up uh, yeah, surrounded Oregon. by. Wow, yeah. it's beautiful down there. Right? Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, and it's not as it doesn't seem to be as like um, <clears throat> urban, like because you're far, you're pretty far away from like Portland. Yeah, and and you're a long ways away from Sacramento and. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, those are good rivers to. Uh, yeah, the to, Rogue, the Umpqua, uh-huh. yeah, the Willamette, and the Mackenzie, the Mackenzie in particular. Yeah. Some great fly fishing on the Mackenzie. I'll have to do that sometime. <laughs> I'd love to. I, I would. I'd love to. Let's yeah. do it. Um, well, before we jump into this, I actually was pretty intrigued when I pulled in. Um, I saw you had a sign. Avatar House? Avatar House. Mm-hmm. You have a name for your house, and that, that's really interesting to yeah. me. Um, why do you call it the Avatar House? Well, when I bought the place, uh, yeah, I bought it as a as a retreat initially. Okay. Uh, and the company's name is Avatar Resources. Oh, okay. Yeah, and people have always asked me, "What? Yeah, did Jim Cameron? Did you get there before Jim did with you know with the movie Avatar?" And I said, "Yeah, I founded the company in '87." Okay. And Avatar, yeah, Avatar is a Sanskrit word, and it there's a number of definitions, but the one that I work with, uh, is, uh, a physical, it, it's the physical manifestation of an idea or an ideal. I like that. Yeah, that. That's what, that's what an avatar is. So in a religious context, I mean, Buddha, Christ, you know, or avatars, uh, yeah. In, uh, today's world, you know, you'll have avatars on your computer that represents you. Right. Yeah. Uh, a business is an idea in physical form. Mm-hmm. And so when I founded the company, it was as a consulting business, and it was designed for me uh, to provide resources to organizations to keep the ideal that founded the company alive and in front of you know, what the organization was about. Beautiful. And, and then um, you would have 
businesses or retreats out here? Yeah, originally, you know, we would bring uh, in the house is structured, and this is you know, the way the, the way the house is currently designed. And I mentioned we're remodeling it, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, there's a big great space here in the middle, and then there's two wings, mm-hmm. and we could actually bring in. And I had bunk beds at one time here, and you know we, so we could sleep, you know, five to six people, and so I'd bring in uh, executive teams. Uh, typically, we didn't overnight, but if I had a coaching client, uh, you know, my coaching practice, you know, almost always I'll start with a two-day intensive, and I'd bring folks up here, and, and mm-hmm. we'd break bread together, we'd have dinner, we'd cook out here on the deck, and uh, and they'd sleep over, and uh, you know, we'd just you know kind of get to know each other. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful sort of respite from the the city. Get on that ferry, and something magical happens when you get on the ferry. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, things just start to fall away, and, and yeah. oftentimes it's subliminal and it's unconscious. But they, you know, when people would get here, there, there's a shift in their tone and tenor. Yeah, I can feel that already um, for myself. Just coming out of the city, so I live on the south side of Seattle. And so I had to come through downtown. Usually I can creep through there pretty pretty quickly mm-hmm. um, in the morning. But there was an accident, and there's it was raining this morning. It, it, yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, wow. Not, not hard. But yeah. The ground was wet, and we need that. But um, you know, everyone forgets how to drive when when it yeah. rains. It's been a few months. <laughs> a few months, <laughs> especially in Seattle, that's unusual. But there was this, um, you know, <clears throat> intensity you know, of driving through the city and, um, I was breathing the exhaust of the truck you mm-hmm. know, in front of me and, um, and then exiting the city, getting onto the ferry. And then I got out of the car and I went straight to the front of the boat and just kind of feel soaked that, it yeah, in. Yeah. Yeah. Titanic comes to mind. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I almost passed out and fell over the front. <laughs> yeah, no, it's nice. It's like you're, you're actually, um, uh, moving through, um, this time and space where you're uh, you're entering a more expansive location. So, mm-hmm. what's it like to like like live in a place like this where it's like a retreat center? Uh, it it is magical. I mean, you know, Cynthia and I, my wife, you know, we joke about it. You know, when we come up here, you need a shoehorn to get me out of here, mm-hmm. I mean, or a stick of dynamite or something. As yeah, I just get here and I I mean, we've got five and a half acres here, eleven if we you know this lot next door, which I've tended for. 15 years uh so we've got 11 acres and we've got deer we've got eagle i've got quail that run by we've got i mean it's rabbits i mean it is bucolic uh, and without stretching the metaphor too much i mean it really is kind of like walton's pond for me in, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways so to be able to write here to be able to just yeah. um sit here and just be yeah because yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the, you know, as we were talking, I mean, I've got a place in Marina del Rey as well. And L.A. is crazy. You know, I mean, it's hectic. Yeah, it's, it's intense. Uh, things are moving all the time. Nothing stops. There's sirens going, you know, 24-7. Yeah. <clears throat> for some reason or another. Uh, here, uh, there's nothing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's just the opportunity to be. And that's what a, gift. a nice treat. And your your work has, is in a place where you can do most of it, like remotely from here. And then, yeah. how, how often do you leave? And- uh yeah, I still travel probably more than I should. Uh, yeah, just a you know, real quick example: in the last two months, I was in eight countries. Uh, really? So, yeah, I try to dial that back, but yeah, you know, you know, part of the consulting is I go where the clients are, and I've got clients all over the world so okay. uh, a fair amount of travel so where were you 
Uh, I was in uh, Germany, uh, France. We were down in Africa for a while. Then I was in um, Japan, uh, a couple of different places in China, uh, Hong Kong, dropped down to uh, Australia, and yeah, there was also Canada and okay. in the backyard of the States. So, wow. Yeah. Global. <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting trip. Cool. Yeah. Um, the 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 idea of avatar and keeping these um, these ideas um, that kind of were the the birth of these these places and and um, con- sort of like continuing to provide energy um, to that idea what what is it um, about this place that kind of um, gives you the energy to keep your work going a couple of things uh, and that is actually a really great question uh, first of all um, water. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm on the water. Uh, when I'm away from water, things don't work for me particularly well. Uh-huh. So there's something about, and I'm sure there's a chemistry or something about it, or maybe even a metaphysical piece, but uh, the water is energizing for me. It's cleansing. Yeah. It's energizing. Uh, it's calming. Uh, but also the earth. I mean, I grew up on a farm. And yeah. being able to, and I'll take my shoes off and just walk around here barefoot. I mean, I, I have to, you know, I, I feel the earth. I get yeah. grounded. And not just you know, metaphorically grounded. I really feel myself grounding when I'm walking around here. Mm-hmm. And um, the air's clean. Yeah. Um, the, the, it's, it's silent for the most part. You know, we've <laughs> you know, would be uh, Naval Air Station is up north in Oak Harbor, so every now and then the jets will actually right. you know, come across here, which is anything but quiet at that point. But yeah. uh, but it's 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 nature, and yeah. I think life, you know, life is exhibited in nature, and you know, I think one of the great calamities of Western civilization is, is the disconnect that we have experienced and are experiencing from nature itself. Yeah. And yeah, and I have to find a way back to nature. I have, you know, when I when I feel myself getting out of sorts, I know that it's time to come back here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Go back home. Yeah, and uh, be rooted. Mm-hmm. Um. This is something that my wife and I talk about quite a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, my wife's work is really about uh, the reconnection to nature <coughs> and, and doing that from a, a spiritual yeah. kind of perspective and, and doing um, practices that help us kind of reroute and get reconnected. I noticed you had a labyrinth, too. Yeah. Way in. You walk that, too. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's yeah, that's patterned after Chartres, and uh, yeah, the labyrinth got an interesting story. When my late wife and I bought this place, you know, the first day we drove in, we hadn't mm-hmm. bought it yet, but she looked over coming down the driveway and she said, "There's a labyrinth there," and I looked and what are you talking about? Because there wasn't really, it was just bare ground. What? Yeah, and she said, "There's a labyrinth there," and I'm going, "Yeah, yeah, that's that's." Thank you for sharing that. But <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we bought the house and bought the land, and about five years into it, she said, "I want to make the labyrinth." Yeah. And I'm going, "What labyrinth?" And she said, "The one that I saw when we drove in." And so we organized. A, it was kind of like a barn raising. We organized a, a group of friends, and uh, we laid this. Uh, uh, labyrinth out and it's laid out you know in, in, to the golden mean uh-huh. yeah and I watched and this was about the time of the uh, uh, spring equinox so I went out at sunrise and watched where the sun came up so the opening of the labyrinth is aligned with the sun coming up on the equinox 
uh, in spring, and then we laid out ordinals um, from there. And each of the ordinals uh, are marked with grandfather stones out of a Sioux sweat lodge. And and, and it, it is, it's all laid out with a golden ratio. So it, it's really kind of a special place. And then we would invite friends to come and if they, uh, when they came, we didn't, you know, we invited them to bring rocks from wherever they were. Yeah. Asking permission to bring the rock first from, <laughs> from, from the rock. We've got rocks from all over the world here. Neat. And, uh, yeah, and it is, it's kind of neat. You know, we, I've even got a stone from Chartres here. Really? Wait, I don't even know where that is. Uh, France. Okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the cathedral. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Big famous labyrinth that's built into the cathedral. How'd you get that on the plane? Uh, it's a small piece, oh, well, <laughs> and I didn't. And I, yeah, and I didn't bring it, so <laughs> it's just a little stone. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> just to comment on on the naming, we we just uh, recently named our house uh-huh. in in Seattle um, called Hedgebrook, and my uh, my wife said um, we're naming our house as Hedgebrook. And usually when she says things like that, I know that it's kind of like yeah, it's this is a done deal. And I'm like, oh, that's that's great. Like what. I, I think I know why, um, but it's um, it has kind of a, a two. It's founded on like two two meanings. So the hedge is um, uh, we had this huge hedge in front of our house, mm-hmm. and so you look out the window and you can't even see who's walking down the sidewalk in in front of the house. And our street um, had so much activity happening on it, mm. um, and it it was it was it was in, it had to be intentional for us to like go outside and uh, sort of engage what was happening. Um, we were calling 911 quite a bit. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so, gosh, okay. I mean, there's all kinds of behaviors, behaviors. yeah, that make you want to um, just stay inside. So what we did was we intentionally tore down the hedge so that we could see um, who was walking Mm. And they could see us, and our eyes could meet. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could make that interesting that connection. Yeah. And then, and then we kind of took it one step further, and we said we're going to actually do gardening intentionally in the front yard instead of hiding out in the backyard, uh-huh. so that we would be yeah in that place. Oh, I love that, Joel. Yeah. And then the wood is um, <coughs> representative of the um, Chisti Woods, which is uh, the largest green belt in the Rainier Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's very urban, but then you have this. A large, large 43-acre uh, green belt uh, right behind our house, and ah. we've been restoring that for the last 10 years through um, work parties and through the Green Seattle Partnership. So we're the local forest stewards for that space, and oh we put trails in, and yeah. um, and it's and it's a way to um, provide safe access to nature in an urban context. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the work that we're about um, in our home, which. You know, you come out here and and it's so uh, rejuvenating. Yeah. You know, it's so grounding and um, and we miss that mm-hmm. in the city. Yeah. And we get so disconnected from it. We don't even know that we're disconnected from it, right? Because we haven't tasted it in so long. Yeah. So just having like access to the trees and the trails and the birds, absolutely, and recreation and yeah. all those things that. You can just soak in that kind of get in your skin and help mm-hmm. you be more human, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I just wanted to comment on that because um, I've been thinking about just naming and the importance yeah. of it as, as a name. Because then you start 
infusing it with meaning, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's not a number. It's not a number. It's not a cipher. It's not a... Yeah, I mean... I know these trees. I, I mean, I do, yeah. and, and I don't. I haven't named them, but I know where they are. I know if there's a limb, if there's a large limb missing, I'll, I'll, I'll notice it because yeah. it has presence. You know, it has volition uh, in in one sense. I mean, it really does have volition. Yeah, it it occupies a space, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. It occupies a space. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> and that yeah, I think that's important. It makes me just think about like so then about us like what are we occupying mm-hmm. what is the space that we're occupying i mean nature is such a great example because the tree is the tree you know and it does what it's supposed to do yeah <laughs> it's much harder for us as humans to figure out which tree we are yeah what, yeah, what, what, what am i a fir i'm a cedar yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah well uh, we have experience and i think uh I mean, we can get into a very interesting philosophical conversation about why we are. Uh, there's, a, I think, a whole existent, yeah, existential conversation about the human race that could be interesting. Why we are. Why yeah. we are. I mean, I was having this conversation last night with a, with a friend of mine. He, because uh, he, he, and this is interesting to, to have this conversation here now because he, we were talking about this intensity of the city and he goes well we're, uh, my wife and I are talking about what's our seven year plan like to get out of the city mm-hmm. and I said well that, that's a that's a really um, uh, well, th- well there's so much to talk about when you first of all you're going okay in seven years you're going to hit the eject button right <laughs> <laughs> so what are you ejecting from, from yeah. like, and, and what about all the relationships and what does your life mean if if you disconnect from all of those relationships yeah. and and you just go out but i i completely resonate with the uh desire for it mm-hmm. you know the the desire to go you know what there's too much noise here i don't feel peaceful and i can leave and then we even got into a discussion about like well that's a privileged perspective to even have that idea that you could escape yeah yeah first and foremost yeah and and then um having the resources to actually to actually pull it off um is and i mean it places you in categories so it's like what's what 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 are we doing so we were talking about the questions what are you doing and why are you here mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it, and those questions <coughs> um continue to bring you into like the present moment of uh where where can i pr- provide the most meaning right? yeah yeah you know, you know, I think meaning, you know, it's interesting. You know, the, you know uh, language is a reflector of and a creator of real, uh, reality. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when people think about I'm going to escape the city, uh, it suggests to me that they, yeah, as a goal, I mean, and, and this is where I think we get sideways sometimes in this culture is we are so preoccupied with setting goals. And goals are just symbols of experiences. That's all a goal is. But people never really, you know, I say never, people typically won't identify what's the experience that the goal is making possible for me. Mm-hmm. And in the drive to achieve the goal, I oftentimes will blow by the experience and get to the goal and go, well, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so when people talk about escaping the city, you know, what are they moving towards, not what are they moving from, is a big, big question. Mm. And... 
if they can identify what are what am I moving towards, it usually is about relationship quality. It's about uh, lifestyle quality, and I can have that any place almost. Yeah, if I'm yeah attentive to it. Uh, you know, kind of like what you've done with your home. You know, take the hedge down in front. It, it allows greater connection. Mm-hmm. Uh, steward the uh, the uh, green belt. It allows for you know a, a more uh, uh, apt connection with the earth. And you know, so, but but it begins with what's the meaning? Yeah. You know, wh- you know where's where's the uh, what's the intent behind the goal? Mm-hmm. You know, you know. And that becomes uh, I think really important. You know, because. I, I think we exist, and this is just my own philosophical bias, but uh, we exist to have experience. And I know myself through my relationships. And the more re- you know, the more uh, access I have to a variety of relationships, the better I begin to know myself if I'm open to that. And um, like you don't find the meaning of life um, by yourself or alone. You find it with others that's thomas mm-hmm. merton yeah that's merton's point and yeah because life doesn't have a meaning that's given it's one that is you know that emerges yeah yeah I, I think for me the meaning of my life has emerged over time and what it was 20 years ago is not what it is today right uh it's it's continuously evolving and i think the greatest disservice i can do to anybody is say what's your purpose as if it's a static static state it's it's not a static state it's an emergent quality hmm. and and it has attributes to it uh and if i'm if i'm attending to those attributes if i'm attending to the color and the smell and the taste and the feel uh, i you know i can kind of find yeah you know, <laughs> i can kind of braille my way into mm-hmm. an experience of life that uh, uh is is available uh, i mean it, it is the unexamined path. Uh, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to I'm going to walk a path that's uh, uncommon. And yeah, and um, I feel that taking the first step or just taking action, or is is often what people just need to do. Mm-hmm. It's just take. It's sort of like lean into the unknown. <coughs> like you don't have it figured out. Right. And and life is about figuring out as you go. <laughs> It's it's not yeah. it's not about yeah. Um, here's the path from here to here, and now, um, you know, get on the on ramp. Yeah, <laughs> and that's all you can. I really do think that that's all you can do is just be willing to get on the on ramp. And yeah. yeah, I had a dream. Somebody asked me years ago how I got into what it is that I do, and back in seventy, and I remember this. <clears throat> it was in 1976. I had gone through a personal development program. And this was when personal development programs were really big. You know, Est and LifeSpring and actualizations and all of those things. Uh, and I went through this program, and I, I remember I had a dream. And I d- typically don't remember my dreams. I still don't particularly remember many of my dreams. Because you're a sound sleeper. I'm a, yeah, yeah, I, I just kind of go out. But uh, this one I remembered. It was in Technicolor, Dolby Sound. I mean, it was just amazing. And... I was, I was, I was on, you know, in the farm, you know, on the family farm, and I was actually in the chicken coop, and it was, you know, chicken shit, and it was smelly, and it was dark, and you could, you know, the sunlight was kind of streaming through a little bit, and you can see the dust particles and all. I mean, it was, vi- it was that vivid. Uh-huh. You could smell it, and, and 
you know, chickens have a very interesting odor, you know, particularly in a closed environment and all that stuff. And the, there's a door down in the bottom, a little you know, in and out egress for the, the chickens to come in and out of the chicken coop. Well, I got down on my hands and knees and crawled through this door okay. and emerged out into the barnyard in bright, brilliant sunshine. <clears throat> and there was a fence with a gate was slightly ajar. And I walked over to the gate, and as I got closer to the gate, and I can still feel this um, voice, and I, it was a it was a felt voice, not a heard voice, uh -huh. uh, but it was a felt voice, and basically it was saying to me, and there was a little, there was a path that was kind of you know, moving through, you know, from from the uh, the gate out into the distance, and it says, if you step through here, there is no return. Oh. And I went okay. And there was also a secondary message that was, you will be off this path more often than you'll be on it, but the path is here. And I was going, oh, that's very interesting. And I remember vividly stepping through that gate, and then I woke up. And that has been uh, my experience of the last, well, 76, so, what, 45 years, mm -hmm. yeah, easily that. Um, I've been on, I've actually been on the path more often than I've been off it, but I've always trusted, and that dream has always been uh, there. I mean, it kind of comes with me. I've always trusted that the path just is, and I can't not be on the path if I'm moving. I may not see it clearly. Right. Uh, and there will be, you know, briles and, you know, you know briles, uh, brambles and, and briars and, and that kind mm -hmm. of stuff every now and then, and that has been my experience too. I mean, <laughs> there have been some, you know, wouldn't call them bad times, but there's been some uncomfortable times mm -hmm. uh, that uh, have been part and parcel of this whole journey. But I've always known it was part of part of the journey, mm -hmm. and I didn't always know that back then. Yeah, but that has been a constant companion. That dream has been a companion for me going forward. What a gift! Oh, it's, it's, it's yeah, it, it's it's really been wonderful in that regard. Because when you have those moments of like self doubt or. Um, you feel like you're <coughs> sidetracked. Mm -hmm. You have that beautiful experience of the yeah. dream with all the color and the smells. Yeah. I have ten chickens. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so there you go. I, I know the smell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially when it gets on your foot. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> your shoes. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah. But uh, um, I, I I love the idea of just being able to um, step into it and and trust that the the ground will meet your foot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that that evokes an image of you know, yeah, Han Solo. I think it was Hans, or no, it was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones yes. stepping off. You know, that was uh, the Last Crusade. Yeah, yeah, he's out there on that ledge, and he just has to take that step. Right. First, it was the penitent man shall pass, and then he gets out there. Oh, good memory. I've seen it a hundred times. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's like one of my idols yeah. you know, growing up. I oh, had yeah. the hat and the wig. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. And it went out in the woods. The Indiana Jones hat. A possum by the tail. <laughs> oh, that's fun. Yeah. That's fun. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, thanks for, for sharing that, that image and also for giving me a little bit of a history about your work mm -hmm. because I just finished your book. You know, conscious capitalism. Yeah, compassionate. Com cap sorry, compassionate that, capitalism. That was Raj. Yeah, that was Raj. Yeah, yeah, Raj Sisodia. Yeah, yeah and, and John Mackey. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and reading that, it, it was evidently clear that you've experienced life, and there's a depth and a wisdom 
to the writing and I it was uh, it was a, a page turner in quotes because I was I kept on highlighting things <laughs> so I'd get through the page because I'm on my like Kindle right and, uh-huh. and, and I'm highlighting and I get through the page and I'm like you can't highlight everything. <laughs> so, oh, yes, you can. So I ended up with like a whole bunch of highlights, like so many highlights that I went back and it, there's so much in there. And I want to get into this, this material with you because yeah. how, how old is this book? It came out. Uh, it came out a year ago. Okay, good. Yeah. So it's pretty fresh. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. And this is your third book? Yeah, it's the third book I've uh, put together. Yeah. Okay. Um, so where, where's the inspiration for this? Because I feel like, this this isn't just like a one-time thing it's like all of your experience coming in into this yeah it's not like oh i have an idea about compassionate capitalism and yeah yeah no this this book has been gestating for a long time Mm -hmm. um yeah i I mentioned you know the human development uh, the personal development work that i did back in the 70s yeah and uh near the end of that you know i i ended up going to work with one of these companies and um ran a, a division and you know, did a whole lot of, you know, platform training work with them and all, you know, and this was all, you know, organized around personal development. Yeah. And I always felt that um, we should be doing work in businesses because that's where most people spend the majority of their lives. And when I left that firm, I, you know, um, the one that I'd work, you know, been working with, I actually t- took a little hiatus and I got a broker's license and went out because I wanted to find out more about business mm-hmm. per se. So I, I started dealing in securities and um, that sort of thing just to kind of get a sense of just how does how does this money world work yep and this was uh in the late 70s early 80s when interest rates had gone crazy and the, the first gas embargo had come in and you know that sort of stuff was going on and you know, people were you know, really kind of hunkering down mm-hmm. um so there was a lot of contraction a lot of fear like today yeah like like today and so I started noticing what was going on in these businesses and it, and it wasn't as if I hadn't noticed it before but now it, it had a backdrop to it so there was more contrast I could see, actually see things in a little bit different fashion and it seemed to me like most businesses were pretty toxic mm-hmm. uh, you know toxic in the sense that uh, they were demanding things of people that um, didn't seem to be life affirming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was going kind of short term goals. You know, life doesn't work in short term goals. Uh, you know, numbers were manufactured out of thin air and presented as if you know Moses had <laughs> carved them out on a stone tablet. Uh, and you know, you got to hit these numbers. And you know, who said so? Well, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, all that stuff. And as a consequence, you know, people were, uh, in my experience, the, the life, you know, the, 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 the vitality was being squeezed out of most people in most workplaces. <clears throat> so, I mean, that, you know, that, that's kind of the contrast. And I did that for a couple of years. And then the securities? The securities okay. thing for a yeah. couple of years. And felt this, compel- you know, this kind of the path thing again here. Uh, I, f- I felt this need to get back into you know, this whole conversation about what what is life about and how can life be lived more wholly more fully more more vibrantly and i was asked to join a consulting firm and i said that i would you know, on the condition that we could bring some of the tenants that i'd been working with you know, in the personal development realm back into the business conversation and that was the first foray that i had to make that happen and, and we were working at the time um 
with Bethlehem Steel. You know, Bethlehem doesn't exist anymore, but uh, Bethlehem Steel at the time was one of the largest uh, steel manufacturers in the world. Okay. And when we were asked to do this consulting project, the firm, you know, Bethlehem had lost, I think, $1.4 billion the year before. Oh, uh, yeah, the, you know, the economy was, you know, on its lips, and there was all kinds of stuff going on. And as far as the uh, the company was concerned, Bethlehem was concerned, the steel industry in general was concerned, it was because uh, the Japanese, the Brazilians, the Germans, the you know, Koreans were dumping steel. Yeah, uh, take your pick on who was the the culprit here, but yeah, it was unfair trade practices and I mean just all kinds of stuff. It mm -hmm. was them out there that was doing it to us, and we were brought in as part of a plant shutdown operation uh, in uh, Buffalo, New York. Okay. Yeah, you know, you know, the, the plant was actually in Lackawanna, New York, and it was a fully integrated steel mill. And if I remember correctly. I mean, it was so big that there was something like three to four thousand miles of railroad track inside this plant. Oh, I mean, it was it goodness. was it was enormous. Yeah, they had, and it was on you know Lake Erie. Um, so you know they had ore facilities, they had smelting, they had the you know the big furnaces. I mean, you know the things that you think of about you know, steel industry. Uh, then they had the the finishing mills. They had you know hot mills, cold mills. They had galvanizing mills. I mean, it was just I mean it's enormous. Enormous. So you're going uh, in to shut all this down. We were going in, yeah, ostensibly to shut it down. And our initial study had indicated that if we could get some concessions from management and from labor about work practices, that we might be able to keep a couple of these mills open. Not okay. the plant, but a couple of the mills mm -hmm. open. And to their credit, you know, Bethlehem said yes. And part of it was the way we structured the deal. We said, you know, we will guarantee results. And if we don't hit the mark, you know, you don't pay us sort of a deal. Now, that wasn't my negotiation. Yeah. That was the, the owner of the consulting firm that had set this up. So that's the backdrop. So they brought me in, myself and another fellow, uh, and part of what our role was was to design some programs that were designed specifically to get labor and management to at least be amenable to some conversations about how they could do things differently. Uh-huh. And so we put together the two, uh, the two departments that don't talk to each other. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, yeah, you, you're just kind of like, yeah, guys, you know, it's all about relation. And, and we'll get into that in a minute here. But we did this. We put these, they're basically training programs, and then they were backed up by uh, consulting work you know, on the ground with these guys that were designed. The consulting effort was designed to integrate what we were talking about in, in the training program. Mm -hmm. And these training programs were very specifically organized around. Um, communication structures around personal responsibility, around a choice. I mean, you know, taking victim off the table mm -hmm. and, and, and saying you you have agency here, and you know, how can you work with this? Long story short, we were, we were successful. We kept three of the mills open and saved a bunch of jobs, you know, at least in the uh, near term. And uh, it was so successful that Bethlehem had us actually go out to you know the rest of their plants, okay, yeah, you know, nationwide to do work. So that, that was proof of concept to me. Right. That um, if we can bring some things in that can change the nature of the conversation that people are having about what they're doing, other things become possible. Okay. And that was the seed. And this you know, goes, you know, this is a long answer to the question, where did this book come from? <clears throat> um, part of it was steeped in the recognition that business has a soul. 
I mean, they're, they're and, and I mean soul here not from a spiritual standpoint uh, or religious standpoint. I mean, it, I do mean it from a spiritual standpoint. The soul is a life-affirming, you know, place is the only word I can think of here, but it, 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 it's that source, that font that mm-hmm. gives life to this organization. And if I'm divorced from that soul, everything else is, you know, kind of uh, open uh, to question about mm-hmm. how we're going to be viable long term. The net of it is, in, in very pragmatic sense, all an organization is at the end of the day is a collection of individuals that are in relationship. Mm-hmm. That's all any organization is, whether it's a family or a business or a government agency or whatever it is. It's just a collection of individuals that are in relationship. Now, on, on the surface, that seems kind of like, well, of course. Um, because, you know, I say on the surface because most people, when I say that, they think of interpersonal relationships, the relationships right. with people uh, and the people that I work with and interact with. I did when you yeah. just said that. Yeah. yeah, and it's not, that's not it. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We have relationship with anything and everything that we encounter in the organization. Uh, we have relationship with goals. We have relationship with vision, with values. We have relationship with the meaning and the purpose of the organization. Um and we have relationship with parking places, with with our chairs, with our tables, with our desks, Objects, all that stuff. Yeah. And the point of this would be, to the degree that the relationships are working well, the organization's going to be pretty viable long term. If the relationships are not working well, you're going to have problems. Where most organizations run into problems is that people don't pay attention. Management, leadership doesn't pay attention to the quality, the efficacy of the relationships in all of their varied forms. Um, and as a consequence, these businesses end up being uh, toxic mm-hmm. because the relationships are soured. The relationships are toxic in and of themselves. You know, relationships, you know, I'm working with a firm right now. Um, it's a startup, and the relationship that they have with money is contractive. It's, it's survival-oriented, you know, yeah. which is not surprising in a startup. But it comes out of a mindset. It comes out of a paradigm that says money is scarce. And people typically have relationships with concepts of money that are organized around scarcity. Right. So if we can change the nature of the relationship, it changes the whole tone and tenor of the experience of reality. So it's an abundant universe. There is no, I mean, all, all money is is energy. And yeah, it's, it, you know, money is a symbol that, you know, that creates something else. Yeah, but people think that it is uh, uh, something that needs to be accumulated. Well, anything that's accumulated over time becomes toxic. Yeah, I mean, you just think of the body system. Um, you think of dams. If you've got too much water behind a dam and it bursts, you know, you've got a lot of destruction. Accumulation is what a lot of folks will, you know, so relationships based on scarcity almost always foster a mindset of around accumulation mm-hmm. and hoarding. And and that is a toxic relationship, and that's what a lot of organizations are, are based on. And so relationships in all their varied forms. Mm-hmm. So the catalyst, or the catalyst, the antidote to the toxicity is not consciousness. Okay. You know, I, th- I think you know, uh, awareness is, is fundamental here. Consciousness is, is fundamental here, so conscious capitalism. But I think the antidote is compassion. Uh, compassion is consciousness in action. I mean, yeah, and compassion is not soft kumbaya sort of, you know, I mean, compassion has a hard edge. I have to make hard choices. Mm-hmm. And I talk about this in the book. 
in terms of you know taking trade-offs off the table. Um, many organizations, and this is where relationships you know, where relationships come back into it again. Many organizations, particularly the management and leadership, think that they have to serve one cohort at the expense of another cohort. And so there's a trade-off. We have to give the shareholders a catbird seat um, mm-hmm. at the expense of the workers, at the expense of, you know, kind of fill in the blank. You know, so there's a hierarchy that gets developed here. If I'm compassionate, I am going to take into account that there are cohorts that have equal footing with everybody else. Nobody has you know, uh, a higher or lower position in the organizational ecosphere. Mm-hmm. They're all ecumenical to the organization's success. To the degree that the relationships are working well, the organization's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. So when we start taking the notion of trade-offs off the table, it literally uh, catalyzes creative thinking. How can, I, how can I make this decision in service of the higher good of all concerned, not in service of just one cohort, not just one constituency? And that gets to be a real interesting conversation. It, it brings up so much. Um, well, how, first of all, you mentioned hierarchy, right? So hierarchy is actually... Um, placing one person with more power than other people. So when you go into an organization that, that has a hierarchy, are you are you actually trying to restructure how um like the structure <laughs> of the organization or or are you saying let's start with um, behaving differently and changing our mindset. Yeah. It's about yeah. It, it, it's more the latter. Okay. Uh, Cuz I mean we could go into a whole conversation about the holacracy um, right. movement. Uh, you know, very flat, you know, you know, who's the leader? I mean, all that stuff. Most organizations aren't designed around that. So right. we, start where we, we start where we start with what we have. Mm-hmm. And most organizations have some form of a hierarchical structure. Mm-hmm. That being said, if we can start looking at the paradigm that informs those structures. We can start looking for opportunities to shift some things. Every result that I experience in my life is a function of the paradigm that is operating in my life. So if I want to change the results, uh, well, here's a simple way of saying, yeah, and, and I've got a, a group in front of me. All I, you know, people raise their hands here. How many of you, you know, how many of you are married if, you know, or have a significant relationship? Yeah, everybody raises their hand at some mm-hmm. point. How many of you have ever tried to change your partner uh, or spouse? And everybody typically will raise their hand mm-hmm. and say, how many of you have been successful at changing? And nobody <laughs> raises their hand. We all want to change somebody else's behavior. But yeah. changing somebody else's behavior is Faust. I mean, it's, it's chaotic, I guess, would be the way to and it, it's It's crazy. You're not going to do it. Right. Unless you've got a big enough stick or a big enough pot of money. And even then, it's going to be short term. And that's the problem with external motivators. Uh, you know, they're, they're short term at best. Yeah. The way that you change behavior long term is to change the underlying paradigm and paradigms show up in a lot of ways it's it's um you know a very simple way here shorthand how i describe something determines how i feel about it how i feel about it drives my behavior Mm -hmm. so rather than focusing on changing behavior in an organization what i want to be able to do is change the description that people are using to make sense of the reality change the description i change how they feel about what's going on 
and that will typically generate a different behavioral set. Mm -hmm. I like that. You're, you're, you're going <coughs> deeper um, into the descriptor yeah. that informs their behavior. Yep. Um, and, and then you're not you're not going. Hey, you've got to flatten the structure. You're just going. No, we're changing the paradigm. Changing the paradigm, and if it's done well, and I you know, and this is where I start moving from. Is this right or wrong? Because that that question always comes up. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Is this good? Is this bad? Take 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 those distinctions off the table, because they are contractive. They're polarizing. Work instead with uh, language that is organized around: Is this working or not working? That's values-free assessment. Yeah, uh, it, you know, it doesn't require me to, to defend anything. Um, it's either this is working or it's not working relative to what we said we wanted to have. Yeah. So when we start working with shifting paradigms, what begins to organically emerge is a different way of organizing, and it's not imposed, mm -hmm. and and it doesn't have to be as a question of is this the right structure? Yeah. Structures are going to, you know, structures are going to be what structures are. Yeah. There, yeah. I don't think there is a right structure. Yeah. There's a structure that works for who we are today, and it'll change tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it goes deeper than any sort of model, you know, that you can slap onto mm -hmm. an organization that, okay, this is the way or this is the solution. I think um, in business, there everybody wants to pay for something that's going to fix their problem, <laughs> you know. Yep. But, but a lot of what's <laughs> sold is just solutions that may work for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, a, sh a short, but they're short-term <coughs> solutions. Short-term solutions. They don't address, they address symptoms, not a, you know, not causation. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, they address the, the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. You know, you know, I developed a model, and it isn't in the book, okay. but it's, it's one that I'm working with right now. And, you know, every consultant worth their salt has got models. Uh, <laughs> this model is a pyramid. You just yeah. kind of think of a typical, typical organizational pyramid. At the very top, and this is where breakdowns occur. Um, at the top, and you know, kind of separate this thing into five levels here. At the very top is tactics. Yeah. So oftentimes there will be breakdowns in tactics, which is the how we do things. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, we get uh, you know, aligned with and attached to certain methodologies, and we just kind of run them at you know, you know forever and ever. And, and that there's a point where they don't become useful any longer. Most. Yes. Organizations we are right run there. Run at tactics. Yeah. Level below that is strategy, the why we do what we do, or the, I mean, you know, the how. Okay. Yeah. There's the how, and then, and then there's the what. You know, what are we paying attention to? That's strategic. Okay. So breakdowns in strategy. Are we, are we in the right market sector? Are we positioning? I mean, all that. Next level down is the question of vision, mm -hmm. and which really is the why we're doing what we're doing. So most, most organizations will focus at those three levels. Vision, strategy, tactics. Okay. Okay. The real juicy stuff um, is the next two levels. And going down, you know, vision is built on a platform of paradigm, belief systems, mm -hmm. you know, you know, mental models, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of stuff. Almost never explored. explored. So when we start dropping down into exploring paradigms, things get real interesting because you shift paradigms and everything else starts to move. Mm -hmm. Underneath that, and I'm still playing with the language on this, is a base of spirit. Mm -hmm. uh, but spirit here is access to life. Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of how I uh, define it. And it's typically what the organization was founded on. Mm -hmm. There was a spirit that founded or spoke or breathed into life uh, this organization. 
most organizations in their uh, life cycle move from being a mission with a business because we need the business to, to execute, you know, to deliver the mission. They move from being a mission with a business to becoming a business with a mission. Okay. And it's that 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 nexus point, that transitional point, you know, from being a mission with a business to being a business with a mission. You'll notice it in the language. You'll notice it in the conversations. The conversation shifts from why are we doing what we're doing in the sense of the delivery of the mission, you know, what what caused us to be uh, mm-hmm. uh, be around, to is this a good business decision? Yeah, are we meeting our numbers? Okay. Uh, are we yeah you know, hitting our quarterly marks? Are, yep. you know, so the decisions almost always, particularly in matured businesses, organize are organized around the health and well-being of the business, not the health and well-being of the mission. Okay, and that's where life starts to get squeezed out of because people don't connect to business; they connect to mission. Right. And if you're looking at emotional engagement as the holy grail in an organization, you don't get emotional engagement around a business opportunity. You mm-hmm. don't get emotional engagement around a quarterly results. You get emotional engagement when it's connected to mission. Right. There's no there's no connection to the the root to the spirit, the spirit. that's providing the energy and the flow and the lifeblood yep. of why these people are why gathered we're here. together. Yeah. Why? Yeah. There's some yeah. Uh, Trying to think of the source of this uh, study. Um, I can't remember right now, but I <laughs> I should remember because I use it all the time. Um, some research data is available around what happens when people are clear about their purpose, and when organizations are clear about their purpose. Yeah, and. It's correlated to commitment to what it is that the organization is up to. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the less, and not surprising, the less clear people are about their underlying purpose individually. And also, lack of clarity around what the um, um, organization's purpose is. The commitment to what the organization is up to uh, is relatively low. You start getting clarity about organizational purpose and you get a little statistical bump but it's not it really isn't that you know that significant you get however people that are clear about why they think they exist on this planet what's yep. important to them from a value standpoint what's important to them from a personal mission standpoint their commitment to any organization that they affiliate with goes up dramatically i mean it, it really is it, it's it, it's a it's almost a doubling of mm-hmm. the commitment level that's measured in this particular study and what's important about that is, you know, for, for me is hiring. You know, how do people hire? You know, what, what, who, do you, who do you select to come to work for you? If you're not hiring for who people are as opposed to what they can do, you're going to be missing the mark completely. Yeah. You know, you know most organizations will uh, hire people for what they can do and then fire them for who they are. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they, they just discover they're not a good fit. I want to hire for who somebody is. Yeah. I can always train them for what I need them to do. Right. Yeah. But it, those conversations, the HR conversations are framed on, like, what can you do? I know. What yeah. can you do? And and it's mostly, <clears throat> have you done this already? Yep. And can you do it again? Can you do it again? <laughs> can you repeat what yeah. you did over here? And, and, over here. And, that's, that's and, and, and where, where that gets to be really crazy-making is you don't provide any opportunity for growth. The, the purpose of goals isn't to get things. The purpose of goals are to grow. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not setting goals that allow me to grow, 
Um, and this, again, you know, we have relationships with everything. I have relationships with goals in life. And if my relationship with goals are stagnant or creating stagnation in my life and my experience of living, yeah, this is, you know, you start seeing depression, you start seeing all kinds of, you know, not, you know, substance abuse because people just want to numb themselves. Yeah. Yeah, because um, ev- everybody wants that connection to spirit or connection to source, whether or not they say it. I mean, a lot of workplaces probably, you bring up that language and they're like, what, what, what are you bringing in here? Yeah, exactly. What are like, you bringing in here? Like, go to church, man. Yeah, like, well, yeah spirit doesn't yeah, belong at work. Yeah, and that's what I, I really resonated with your book from that perspective because I feel like we've um, we've compartmentalized so much mm-hmm. of our work in the way yeah. and the way that we just we do anything where it's like th- that that doesn't belong in here. We we do business here. We do work here. Yeah, you know, this, this isn't supposed to be fun. Are you talking about feelings? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cut cut off the major part of what makes you human in order to show up here. Oh, it's gross. Yeah, it's just yeah, it, it's, it is it's tragic. Yeah, all I want is your head. I don't want the rest of you. Um. So how how are you getting uh, how are you getting businesses to enter in this conversation in a way? I mean, you got a track record, so I think, you know, you have that going for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and. But when you go in and you start talking about these things, and then people are like, what, "What's this guy talking about?" Like, yeah. <laughs> um, the the key, I mean, the key. One of the things that I learned, and this goes all the way back to work I did with with Bethlehem Steel back mm-hmm. in the early '80s. I have to know the language in order to move something to the next level, and so. The positioning of any of this work is, you know, is linguistically framed so that there is uh, yeah, a conversation about ROI. There are conversations about uh, uh, productivity. I mean, I mean you know, you, uh, it's positioned in a language that the business leaders mm-hmm. can understand. Okay. And, you know, like I mentioned, I, I, I grew up on a farm. And, you know, we used to, you know, when I was a kid, we used to catch snakes. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, just why, you know, why not? <laughs> they were around, so let's go catch them. Um, but the way you catch a snake is you get it, you know, you wave something shiny in front of it, and it'll get focused on it, and then you come up behind it and grab it. Really? You grab it behind the head. It doesn't see you coming. Metaphorically, and it's kind of a uh, crude example here, but that's kind of what consulting is. I mean, you shine a shiny object in front of whoever's productivity. buying. Productivity. Productivity. And then, you know, you, you, some, you bring something else into yeah. the backside of it. Mm-hmm. And um, they, most times, in, 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 people don't really understand what they need to have in order to get where they want to go. They okay. think they know that it's supposed to be this, but it really isn't this. Now, we may get this, whatever this may be, but it's really something else. And this is this moves us from a conversation of, uh, from treating the symptom to addressing the cause. Mm-hmm. And you know, that that's kind of where we end up moving. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, well, I want to get more into this book. Um, you you, you mentioned... Uh, is the dog going to be... A, oh, it's fine. Is sure? This is reality. Okay, this, this is reality. Like we got dog, a little dog barking. barking. in the background. Dog's barking in the background here. Now, if he yeah. does it 10 minutes from now and he hasn't stopped, then... Okay, because <laughs> I can close this window. Okay, no, I think it'll be all right. Um, the You said shifting the paradigm, right? Um, I'm just going to read a quote. Okay. 
the challenge today is to shift the paradigm about how we approach the creation and the stewardship of wealth. And so begins an exploration into how we collectively own and how we individually live out and transform the narratives that we've inherited. Mm -hmm. what, are, what is the major paradigm do you think that we are shifting away from and into? Or are, are there multiple? I, I actually think there are multiple. Um, but you, you look at what we have today around wealth disparity. Yeah. Um, yeah, the gap is greater than it has been you know, actually since before the robber barons. Uh, I mean, it, you know, we have surpassed what was existent back in the uh, late 1800s when you know, all of this began. Yep. Um, conversations today around um, uh, universal, um, uh, what's the word I want here? A, a, a universal wage. I mean, there was a piece that I saw come across yep. uh, in the Wall Street Journal today, I think, um, around if, uh, and this was a study that was just done um, by, I forget what the institute was, but if every American you know, in, in the country was uh, given, literally given $12,000 on an annual basis with no strings, yeah. that the increase in uh, the economy would be estimated to be around 16%. I think I'd have to go back and look at the specific study, but there was there was a significant upside. Now that is controversial as hell. Yeah, yeah, the, the yeah, there, there's a whole wing of the political spectrum that would just be hair on fire, aghast at the notion. Um, but you look at Norway, you look at some of the countries that are actually beginning to implement some of this, they have got a far healthier populace, yeah. far healthier economy, and a far more civil uh, discourse than what we seem to have in this country today. Yeah. So there's, there's consequences to wealth disparity, and it's, yeah, it, 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 it foments, literally foments, civil disobedience, civil disrest, uh, the have, have not dynamic all comes into play. So that that's one paradigm I think that's in play. Another, and this is a really interesting paradigm, is just the nature of money itself. Hmm. Uh, money's a fiat, and by fiat I mean it's the state that creates it and controls the distribution of it. Yep. There's two pieces to that, the, the creation of and the distribution of money. Well you look at uh, blockchain structures today, right. Uh, Bitcoin and you know, yeah, yeah, Ethereum, that yep. sort of thing. Um, what's going on there is the state is not involved in the creation of, but more importantly, the distribution of the money. When distribution moves from a centralized locus, yep. control disappears. And money has traditionally been the purview of the state, the distribution of money, mm -hmm. uh, the minting of money. It has been the purview of the state. You start moving away from that, the locus of power shifts dramatically. Yep. I mean, and in ways that are unpredictable in terms of what the consequences would be. Because the powers that be will not have the power that they've historically had. So they're getting squirrely. They're getting really squirrely. Because this is an opportunity for there to be decentralized power of money mm -hmm. globally. Yeah, globally. I mean, if, if the state is not in charge... What do we do? Right. I mean, we would, you know, the, the beauty of blockchain is we don't need the state to regulate because these, I mean, it's still nascent, but, you know, uh, a, a strong blockchain structure uh, is self enforcing. 
you know, it's self-regulating, mm-hmm. I guess would be a better word for it. Uh, just, just, just by the nature of the way that this, that it's structured. Yeah, I want to learn more about that. that yeah, I do too. Yeah. I mean, I see it popping up a lot more in conversations, and uh, I think the startup community too is is talking a lot more yeah. about that. Um, yeah, the, the ICOs that are coming on, you know, the ICO, yeah, initial coin offerings. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> what they're called. ICOs. Really? Yeah, initial I coin offering. I've never offering. heard that. Yeah, when there's a new uh, virtual currency that comes out, it's you know there's an ICO on it. So two paradigms. There's the wealth disparity paradigm. Yeah. The nature yeah. of money paradigm. The nature of money paradigm, and the, the existing paradigm has been one that is uh, around accumulation. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the locus of power is centralized, yeah. and those that can accumulate, yeah, you know, can capture that, accumulate the most. The paradigm is that accumulation is good. The antithesis of that paradigm is that circulation is what's required for health and well-being. Accumulation will kill over time. Circulation is life-affirming. Just think about that in the human, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's like you said, if you accumulate too much in your body, you get sick. Yeah. If if you have the blood flowing, the circulation, healthy. You think of currency, and I literally mean currency, money in this sense, uh, as the lifeblood of an economy Mm -hmm. if it's constrained the economy is going to be ill and right now we've got a lot of constraints on our uh on on the flow of our currency Mm -hmm. an enormous amount of constraints and a lot of it's predicated on accumulation Mm -hmm. um is is this the same paradigm as scarcity in abundance Paradigm mm-hmm. is is that are we talking about the wealth paradigm? Yeah, is the that, wealth paradigm. So scarcity and abundance is another way to describe that, right? Right. Yeah. If 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 I'm living in a paradigm of scarcity, my focus is going to be on getting as much as I can, not on being a center of distribution. And I, you know, if if I think of myself, if I think of an abundant world, you know, if I think of cash or or, or money. You know, money's a form of energy. If I think of it as being abundant, that it's inexhaustible in terms of its, you know, it doesn't have to be in the form of a dollar bill. And I'm just a distribution channel. Mm-hmm. And if I'm a distribution channel, what I put out is going to come back. I mean, and I don't mean this in a karmic sense. I mean this in a very fundamental law of nature sort of a way. Any accumulation constrains the flow of energy. And the more I'm allowing it to flow through me, the more I will have access to over time. Mm-hmm. That's an abundance consciousness. And it's not just with monetary uh, uh, artifacts, material goods. It's with love. It's with health. It's with well-being. It's with, I mean, you know, just kind of fill in the bank mm-hmm. or fill in the blank or fill in the bank, uh, <laughs> as the case may be here. Um but there, there's a, this. It, it is a consciousness of uh, of wealth, not an, uh, a focus on accumulating wealth. It's a consciousness of I am wealthy. Wealth is the net. Wealth is the birthright of nature. Wealth is, and, and I'm part of nature. So by definition, wealth is my birthright as well. Mm-hmm. I was just having a conversation with. Uh, a- a friend of mine um, a couple of days ago and his his daughter's a a junior in high school and she's she's getting into the fine arts and she's really kind of focusing her time and energy on painting which i think is great you know mm-hmm. wow. what a uh, perfect 
time of your life to be exploring that and to have that be an expression of, of who you are. And and then he said, well, I'm really nervous about... <laughs> I, see, I know exactly where this is going. <laughs> about how she's going to make, make a living. living. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, whoa, you, hold on a second. Junior in high school, let her be a junior in high school. Exactly. And give her the support. And I'm not even talking about financial support. Just be there mm-hmm. to help her... Um, to provide a container for her to, to do this yeah. and it'll figure itself out. And he's like, well, the, you know, the, I know what is in front of her. And if it's anything like my life, you know, the That's universe is going to kick paradigm. her ass That's at some paradigm. point in time. And, and I don't want that to happen. And I'm like, well, that's a, first of all, that's a, that's a horrible paradigm to be, to, to be a, a parent from. Like, pa- to, to parent from to that. parent from, yes. Because yeah. you're telling your daughter that the universe is going to kick her ass. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Uh, Argue for your limitations and they will be yours. Oh. And, <laughs> uh, I mean, I was so frustrated with the conversation because it was so tragic in my mind. Yeah. Like, the, there, here's this um, youthful. You oh, know, vibrant. Just, yeah. That, that is exploring That's alive. Art. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And there's so much beauty in that. And um, yeah. So when, when I was reading about scarcity and abundance, I, um, that was like a, a live example for me yeah. um, of, uh, of how <clears throat> just right here, um, one of my friends, you know, is, is having this paradigm yeah. of, OK, life's been hard. Um, they're, they're, yeah. Therefore. Yeah. yeah. But. And what's so beautiful about this book, too, and, and about, I mean, going back to the roots of your work, Avatar, is you, your energy, and this, this is um, energy creates matter. Mm-hmm. Consciousness creates reality. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's so alive for me right now. Yeah. It's like, thank goodness, you know, that that is true because we can imagine a future and then, and then have that become our reality. Yeah. Why not? Come on. <laughs> you know, I, I think I mentioned this in the book. Yeah, I work with thousand year visions. You know, when awesome. I'm, you know, when I'm working, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, let's don't do a three year vision, do a thousand year vision. People go, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. I'm going, no, just imagine if you had a magic wand and a thousand year vision, what would this thing be? And they go, oh, God, I can't. No, just please entertain me here. Yeah. Just kind of play with it. Most people, when they work with that, can actually imagine what, you know, a thousand years could be like. I mean, it becomes utopia. Yeah. I mean, it it, it literally moves into utopia, you know, utopiastic thinking. Uh, now, the good news about this is that by definition, a thousand years, I'm not going to be here. Yeah, in this form, <laughs> I'm just right. not going to be here. So, uh, it allows me a whole lot of freedom. So, if I can land on a thousand year vision, the next question would be, what do I need to start doing today? to start having that be a possibility mm-hmm. yeah, 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 in, in 10 generations lifetime. Mm-hmm. But I can begin to identify what, you know, what I could do today to make that utopia exist. And I forget who the author is here, but you know, progress occurs um, by successive realizations of utopia. That's yeah, how we progress uh, as a species, is the progressive realizations of utopias. We land on the beach of utopia and going, wow, this is amazing, and you look over your shoulder and go, I wonder what's out there. Yeah. Yeah, there's another utopia out there. It's a successive realization of utopias. Mm-hmm. And why would we dream of anything other than utopia? 
I mean, I, yeah, it, that just, I, I, why not dream of utopia? If you've got the, if you've got the agency to dream, yeah, and you've got the choice to go that way or that way, let's go the way that's going to be most life affirming. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to be held captive by my senses, and most people find themselves creating a future that is predicated on their past experience. And, you know, I, I get into this whole, you know, the leadership program that I've developed around, you know, compassionate capitalism, you know, one of the domains that we play with is the, the nature of time and space. And not from a uh, quantum, well, actually, I do bring in quantum physics around this, but, uh, yeah, most people don't understand the nature of time. Um, first of all, it's a, uh, what, what was Einstein's quote? It's a uh, ne in naggingly persistent illusion. Um, yeah, you know, at, at a quantum level, time doesn't exist. You know, but in our experience, you know, obviously time does exist. But most of us have a linear experience, and it's predicated on past, present, future structures. Right. And if I can live from the future, live from the future, my present experience becomes different than my past in a fundamentally different way. Most people live from the past, and their future and their present is just an extension of what's always been before. Hmm. If I live from the future, and this is where utopias get very compelling, I live from that future. I live from that utopiastic future. I live from it. I come from it. I breathe from it. I think from it. My present starts exhibiting the attributes of that utopia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you talked about emerging consciousness. Mm -hmm. So that's what you're doing, right? Yeah. You're creating this future that's bringing in a present consciousness that allows that future to emerge. Right. And I begin behaving today as if that future already existed. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and, and that's how we move things forward. Uh -huh. That's how progress is created. That's how we move things forward in a, a healthy way. In a healthy way, <laughs> yeah, in a healthy way. It's, it's moving. I mean, it literally is being pulled, not yep. pushed. It's, I'm, I'm pulling myself from the future into a reality yep. as opposed to pushing myself from the past. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about um, movement, right? Well, well, what's your definition of leadership? Wasn't it something to do with coordinated yeah. movement? Yeah, leadership is the, uh, yeah. It's the co-creative activity of producing coordinated movement in a system. Okay. And in, in co-creative, there's two pieces of that that I think are fundamentally important. And, and that are different from most people's understanding of leadership. Co-creative. There is nothing on this in this world that is created by an individual or a single entity in and mm -hmm. of itself. It's it, everything is co-created. So leadership has to be seen as a co-creative activity to begin with. Yeah. So that takes out the notion of the hero leader and you know all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And there's not going to be anybody that leads me anywhere without my permission. <laughs> so it's a co-creative process. Secondly, is the coordinated movement. Um, I, I have to do this dance with people to get it done. So how do I co-create with others? Yeah, and that's that's where coordinated movement. I used the, um, the reference that I that I organize with is elegance, uh, and I use it in a software sense. Yeah, if, if I'm a software coder, you know, if I'm writing code, software code. Elegant code is code that is written in a way that has no unintended consequences. It's mm. bug-free. You know, ideally, it's bug-free. I don't have to go back and clean up after anything. From a leadership perspective, I want to have elegant co uh, coordination. I want to have my, my process 
be as elegant as I can make it so that I don't have to go back and clean up my mess. And a lot of leaders don't pay attention. And this is for relationship. You know, I mean, everything's a relationship. So if I've got to spend more time cleaning up after myself than I did getting things moving, I've got, you know, it, it's a, it, that's, a, that's a crazy trade-off. Mm -hmm. So I want to be able to attend to the quality of the relationship, the quality of the dance, the quality of that coordinated movement. Uh, is it elegant? And I, you know, I've gone so far as to say that done well, leadership can be beautiful. And beauty, beauty you know, and, I, and I talk about this from an Aristotelian uh, philosophy point of view, um, the virtues. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, beauty was one of the top virtues. And beauty is the expression of spirit being made manifest. So you know, when I look at a piece of art in a, and I say it's beautiful, I can actually see the life in that piece of art. I mean, that, that, you know, beautiful art has a life of mm -hmm. its own. And, you know, it's imbued with life, and I can see it in its form. Leadership is the same thing. Leadership done well can be beautiful. As a matter of fact, I'd, I'd argue that it is beautiful. Beautiful leadership will cause life to exist in a very generative fashion. Mm. You know, the, the experience is generative. And anyone could be a leader, right? Everybody is a leader. Thank you. Um, Leaders cause movement. I mean, you know, we strip away all of the value attributions about how they do it, mm -hmm. uh, uh, that sort of thing, you know, personality quirks and all that other stuff. At the end of the day, what any leader does is they cause movement in the system. Based on that very simplistic definition, and it is simplistic, not, uh, it's simple, not, yeah, yeah, I don't mean to say that it's simplistic, it's simple. Mm -hmm. um, based on that definition, everybody is a leader because it's impossible for me to enter any human system or actually any system and not have the system respond to my presence. Mm -hmm. Even if I just so, uh, show up sucking air, that's all I do is just be an air circulator. <laughs> I'm gonna cause people to move and organize because I'm there. Mm -hmm. So I'm causing movement. So based on that reality, everybody is a leader because everybody causes movement in some way. A newborn child is a leader, mm -hmm. you know, because they, they cause a reorganization of the family. That's unit. interesting. They're doing a reorg. They're doing a reorg. <laughs> So, I, you know, I, I, I really harp on that when I'm working with folks because I want them to understand that they are a leader. It's, it's not a question of whether they're made or born. They just are a leader. The question that really is relevant is are they effective? Are they getting the kind of movement they need to get the result that they say they want? Mm -hmm. That's a completely different conversation mm -hmm. and opens up all kinds of opportunities for how can I be more effective as a leader? I'm causing movement, but am I getting what I need in the form of movement to get the result that I want? Mm -hmm. um, in the book, you say that a leader has to be purely authentic and, and has to be evaluated for the efforts as a whole. Can you speak to that? Authenticity. Um, yeah, I, I do a program for the American Association for Physician Leaders. And it's part of, originally it was part of a Harvard project, and it's called Leadership Authenticity. And the reason that we're doing that program with physicians is because most physicians, from a clinical standpoint, are used to being in charge in the OR or in charge of, you know, the health care of their, their patient, that sort of thing. Being in charge from a role perspective doesn't carry a whole lot of water, you know, long term. People will only connect with me if they have access 
And that access is made possible by authenticity. Is there actually somebody there? Huh. Is there somebody that I can relate to? Is there something there that is uh, uh, compelling me to say, I want to come with you? Okay. And that's what authenticity. We connect. We, yeah. Here's the thing about authenticity that is kind of paradoxical. I have to be vulnerable in order to be authentic. Most people will hide behind their position or behind their role or behind their education or behind their you know, degrees or, or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And that, that facade prevents people from connecting. Authenticity requires vulnerability. We connect through vulnerability. We disconnect through certainty. Hmm. And most people, most leaders that I've worked with, a lot of leaders, not most, but a lot of leaders will present this facade of certainty that doesn't give people a a, a chance to connect in a meaningful way to actually what's what's behind it. Now, that being said, I want to position some certainty because people want to know that I know where I'm going Mm -hmm. in order for them to follow me. But if that's the only only play that I've got, um, it's... You're going to be, uh, I mean, if, if, all, if all I've got is, you know, one way to play the game, somebody's going to beat me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this kind of gets into, you know, because we, we live in systems. And there's a, um, a law in systems dynamics that's called the law of requisite variety. Oh, interesting. The okay. law of requisite variety. And what the law of requisite variety, paraphrased, uh, essentially says is that the element in the system that has the most choices available to it will be the dominant element in the system. Okay. So a leader has to have more choices available to him or her about how they respond to pushback because they're always going to get pushback when they start to move things. The more choices I've got about how I respond behaviorally, how I respond intellectually, how I respond uh, linguistically, I mean all kinds of different things here, the more I've got will allow me to actually be more in a more dominant position. And I say dominant position in the sense of not overlording, but uh, being able to answer objections, being able to address pushback. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to keep being, uh, the objective here is to cause movement. The objective is to get to a result. So the law of requisite variety comes into play from the standpoint of, do I know myself well? And this is where authenticity mm-hmm. really makes a big difference. Do I know myself as a leader well enough to know how, how I can actually pivot how I can turn, how I can address these issues and remain whole. You know, I, I, I don't want to uh, compromise who I am from a value standpoint in service of getting an objective. But if I know who I am, there's a lot that I can do to make things happen out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that takes that takes vulnerability, like you said. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it takes experience. It does, yeah. It, it takes yeah, experience, and it can happen either on an organic ad hoc sort of a way, or you can actually get mindful and intentional about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I, you know, I, I've broken down the coordinated movement aspect of leadership into some, some key areas here. Personal mastery is part of it. Yeah. Communication mastery is part of it. Uh, the ability to work with contextual frames is, is another part of it. Um, trust. You know, how you engender and create and maintain trust. I mean, so there are some elements that I can pay attention to. But if I just take communication mastery as an example, um, most people learn to communicate accidentally and then never got beyond that. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah. We, we learn to communicate through trial and error, observation. We watch you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> when we're growing up and we go, ah, if I make that sound, something happens. So I'm going to keep making that sound. Mama, and mom comes over and picks me up and hugs me, and I'm going, oh, this is kind of cool. I like that. 
we learn language and kids are fascinating. Kids will spend, young kids will spend a lot of time early on figuring out the meaning of words. And Virginia Satir, a family therapist a long time ago, came up with the best definition of communication I've ever seen. It's simply the ways, plural, the ways we work out common meaning with one another. And if we don't have common meaning, we don't have a platform to, to create coordinated movement from. Mm-hmm. We've lost that meaning. We've lost that definition a long time ago in terms of how most adults actually communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, kids you know, are always testing. Do we have the right meaning here? Is common meaning the same as common language? Nope. Okay. Nope. Uh, example of this. Yeah, uh, I work with a lot of multinationals uh, where... English is the working language, but it's not native to the vast majority of the people in the workforce. So they will have a common language, Mm -hmm. but they don't have common understanding of the words that are used. Mm -hmm. And they make up their own meaning around it, and then we're off to the races. Mm -hmm. And people will organize their behavior around the meaning that they have made up about what it is that's going on around them. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about intrinsic value. And how that changes everything. The way that I address it in the book, uh, in, I mean, the simple version of it is that anything, I mean, literally anything and everything has value just because it is. Yeah, there, it wouldn't exist if there wasn't a value to it. Yeah, a mosquito has value. Mm-hmm. I may not know exactly what it is. I can consider it an aggravation. Do you kill mosquitoes, Blaine? I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Uh, do you feel a little bit guilty? I do feel a little bit guilty, but Me too. Not, not, a, not a lot. But I do feel, you know, it's kind of like, guys, you know, if you went over there, I wouldn't have to do this. <laughs> Three of them the other morning landed on me, and I'm like, sorry, buddy. Yeah, you're, you're out of here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm mindful of the fact that they carry disease and that stuff, but yeah, there is everything has value. Uh, so there's an intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. And again, I say intrinsic, I may not be aware of it. But it has value, and that's the intrinsic nature of value, mm-hmm. is just because it's there, it has value. Um, the value that gets assigned is the one where we are saying this is used for that. It's useful in this context. It's useful for this application. Mm-hmm. That, that's an ex- externalized valuation. Mm-hmm. Okay? From a business perspective, and this kind of gets into the disposable society that we live in, you know, we, we don't identify that you know, there is intrinsic value that... You know, we, we can't throw things away. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just can't throw things away. There is a value to what we have. And if we are consuming without a, um, being mindful of the value of it, we've got some problems. Uh, what's your dog's name? Bella. Bella. Yeah. <laughs> Bella the vicious Pomeranian. Dogs are the best. All four and a half pounds of her. That they they not only have intrinsic value, but they just love on you, right? Oh, it's, I mean, if the world treated me the way the dog does, I I'd just kind of... <laughs> I'm a hero! Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, where were we? Oh, the intrinsic value, yeah. Yeah, and, and disposable society and how we just take our resources and, and use them instead of... Yeah, when somebody throws something away... You know, where is a way? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, there's, and I think I cite this statistic in the book. There is more plastic accumulated in the oceans of the world today than by, by, by weight than there is fish in the ocean by weight. 
And I mean, just stop and think about that statistic. It's just crazy. So in our manufacturing processes, yeah, how do we manufacture with recyclability, not disposability, as the paradigm? Uh, in the services that we offer, in the products that we bring to market, recyclability, nature recycles everything. Man disposes mm -hmm. of things. And it's, you know, taxing our natural world in a way that's not, not natural. You, you reference nature quite a bit in the book, and I mean, it's certainly something of resonance for me as, as a, a model mm -hmm. for how we should be operating um, our businesses. Mm -hmm. um, there, you had a quote about um, it's, it's the only truly free market system. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love yeah. that quote. Yeah. Because it, it's beautiful. It says, okay, this is actually how what a free market looks like mm -hmm. and and everything has intrinsic value it puts a whole different frame uh, on uh yeah and it puts a whole different frame on on business it, it, if, if you go um let's take nature and and let's take those principles of how they organize and and how it operates as mm -hmm. an ecosystem and let's start yeah do, do you do that a lot with your yeah i do clients yeah um you know, when, I, when, when we close a deal, you know, when somebody brings us in, yeah, they're going to compensate for us uh, doing the work that we do. But my organization and my orientation personally is what do I get to contribute now? I mean, it's, so it's, you know, I, I look at the money that comes in you know, as a way to fuel my opportunity to contribute in the most uh, generous way that I possibly can. We almost, well, I can't think of an instance where we haven't, over-deliver, you know, beyond what we've been, you know, scoped to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what nature does. I mean, nature, you know, is, is not, you know, the, 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 nature isn't stingy. Right. It's not stingy. Uh, it gives what it can with what it has where it is at any given moment in time. Um, so, yeah, it's, there's seasons to it, there's seasonality. The problem with what we call free markets today is that they're steeped and based on a paradigm of scarcity. Mm -hmm. Nature doesn't even consider scarcity as, as an option. It, it, you know, scarcity doesn't exist. Right. I mean, even in a desert, scarcity isn't an operating premise. I mean, it really isn't. You know, the, the ecosystem has evolved in a way that allows for you know, a reality to be what it is. And you know, we will have wildflowers just bloom crazily when rain comes. But it's not because there's scarce water. It's because the seeds and the, and the ecosystem is designed to take advantage of something that is a naturally occurring phenomena. Mm -hmm. you know, rainfall in the desert you know, very seldom happens. But it does happen. Uh, and there's plenty of life that lives in a desert. I mean, there is plenty of life that lives in a desert. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. You bring that up. I'm I'm reading uh, The Alchemist mm. to my daughter. Yeah, follow Casala. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. my six year old daughter, and uh, and we're in the desert, um, in, in part of the book, and and he he actually just turned himself into the wind. Mm. <laughs> that part. Mm -hmm. yep. He talks to the desert, and he talks about, um, and the desert says, "Well, I I've given my." Um, the little that I have to produce yeah. the flower in the desert. And it's, it's, it's an abundant universe. I give yes. what I have. 
you come from a spirit of opulence, and, and, and Thomas Troward talks about this. And, and if you haven't read Thomas Tra uh, Troward, fascinating reading, uh, you know, the Edinburgh Lectures. Um, he was a transcendentalist you know, back at the turn of the century, the turn of last century. Uh, one of his uh, lectures was on the spirit of opulence. Mm -hmm. And the spirit of opulence essentially is, I come from a place that is abundant. I come from a recognition that the universe, not just myself as an individual, but the universe is an abundant place. There is no, you can't create and you can't destroy energy. It just exists. And the, the key is circulation. Hmm. You, know, you, you give what you have with what you have at the moment. It doesn't have to be money. You know, it can be wisdom. It can be a laugh. It can be an acknowledgement. It can be anything. But if you start coming from, I have plenty to give, I have plenty to give. Mm -hmm. There's no, I can't outgive the universe. Yeah, and the universe is fueling me all the time. Right. So I come from that position, and it creates a mindset that spills over into all domains of my life, not just the material, but the spiritual, the intellectual, the emotional. Uh, yeah, we just come from a place of there's plenty to give. Mm -hmm. I don't have to hoard. Yeah, I mean... This hoarding, you mentioned this in the beginning of the book when you kind of go into like a, a history of, of capitalism. Mm -hmm. I think um, I think it would be helpful to for listeners to to just describe capitalism because I think that word, you know, going back to what you were talking about, like we have descriptors for what mm -hmm. that word is. So maybe it would be helpful if you could describe um, what capitalism is as you know it, and then and then sort of help us um, bridge from. Uh, the way that that capitalism is existing and what what we can do and i really want you to talk about heart and soul <laughs> I mean, okay because i don't i don't want to i don't want to like uh go back to square one here but but you know compassionate capitalism i i, I want to make sure that it's it's clear your ideas of what compassion is mm -hmm. and what capitalism is mm -hmm. and because it almost seems like an oxymoron. Yeah, it is. It, it's, it, you know, it was designed to be oxymoronic right. in the way that people currently experience it. Uh, first of all, capitalism is an economic model um, in the way that we're talking about it. So I, I guess I'd go back to the, the beginning. Um, 1776, Adam Smith wrote a book that was the first written description of an economic model. And he called it the Wealth of Nations. I mean, that's the, the truncated title. Okay. Um, and in the book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, he talks about something that he calls the uh, invisible hand. The invisible hand that guides the creation of wealth for nations. And it's basically um, mutual self-benefit, you know, trading partners. You know, ben you know, making sure that, you know, you don't get you know, the short end of the stick because I need to have you trading with me long term. So mm -hmm. there's mutual benefit involved in this. The idea of the uh, um, invisible hand was sourced out of a book that he wrote about 16 years earlier called uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiment. And The Theory of Moral Sentiment actually was written in response to Rene Descartes, uh, I think, therefore I am. And there was a schism that was uh, created uh, with that whole philosophical um, movement that basically had man being the overlord of everything. It, it moved man away from connection with nature. I think, therefore, therefore I, I am. am. Because I have rational thought, 
I exist. Everything else around me doesn't have rational thought. Therefore, it is lower on the totem pole than I am. Mm -hmm. The theory of moral sentiment, uh, when Adam Smith wrote it, he was going, no, 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 that, that's not, we are actually all part of, a, of the same system. We can't separate ourselves. I mean, that was the whole you know, idea behind the theory of moral sentiment. And it's a very you know, loose paraphrasing of, of, of a very interesting book. He used that notion to inform the invisible hands you know, idea in the wealth of nations. You know, we're all we're in this together. Yep. Okay. So that was the first treatment of an economic model that was written down, and it became kind of a you know, in 1776. It be, actually became kind of a guidebook, a roadmap for a number of years. Fast forward, <coughs> and um, you, you get about 200 years down the line, or a little bit less than that actually, um, in the early 1900s. Um, well, I think it was 54. Ayn Rand wrote a book called Fountainhead. Ayn Rand? Ayn Rand, A-Y-N-R-A-N-D, okay. a philosopher. She wrote The Fountainhead. She wrote Atlas Shrugged. Uh, and it became you know, both of those books, and she wrote a number of other books as well, but they became kind of the Bibles for what emerged as a libertarian movement today. And the whole idea of uh, her epistemology, her philosophy, was that Man is indeed the overlord of all, and, 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 and she called it rational self-interest. Okay. Not enlightened self-interest uh, or mutual self-interest, but rational self-interest. And rationality had to do with selfishness. You know, what, what would be a rational thing for me to do here in service of my own well-being? Okay. That actually moved into our economic conversation and actually began to inform a lot of economic activity, you know. Um, and it, you know, I mean, it, it it had started already happening, but you know, it, all of a sudden it kind of got codified. And Fountainhead and uh, Atlas Shrugged were runaway bestsellers. I mean, they they were really. Uh, I mean, I read it in the oh sixty nine, I think sixty eight, sixty nine, like this, and I'm going, God, this is an amazing book. This mm -hmm. is because you know, it, it really spoke to the American spirit of just go west and you know, you're, yeah. you're you're you know, you're your own man and you make it your. You know, I mean, all that stuff, pioneer. Um, and I mean, and it really did. It resonated with me at the time. And as I you know kind of got a little bit more schooled, then it it became you know. <laughs> less rational to me, uh, shall we say. Uh, but about that point in time, Milton Friedman and a couple of other economists um, got a hold of some thinking around, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, kind of butcher this a bit, but Friedman wrote a famous article in which he stated that the purpose of business is to, create, you know, is to, is to make a profit. That's the purpose of business, is to make a profit, which was the natural extension of rational self-interest. So the purpose of an organization is to take care of itself. More specifically, the purpose of an organization is to take care of its shareholders. Hmm. So shareholder value became the gold standard by which every business activity was measured, profit being you know, kind of the metric that was used to determine that. So that kind of put us where we are today. I mean, you know, you got Citizens United saying that, you know, corporations are, are, are people and, mm -hmm. um, you know, have the rights of individuals and, I mean, all, all that kind of stuff. And it's all organized around a lack, you know, around the notion of accumulation of wealth. Okay. And that's not what the model started out being. It was intended to be 
a free flow exchange of wealth or free flow, free, free flow exchange of goods and, uh, and ideas and services that created wealth for both parties, for all. Um, and it you know, has become far less than that. Well, and it's the, if you go back even further, it's the moral yeah. aspect of it, right? Yeah, the mor- yeah if, if you, uh, <laughs> when you look to businesses today and you think of compassion, American capitalism in particular has no compassionate bedrock. There is no compassion at all. There is no soul. You look for the soul of business. You look for a soul in business. And particularly in American capitalism as it's practiced today, there is no soul. There is no feeling of connection to anything other than the profit. Hmm. And there's no life there. You know, it, it is so disconnected to a life-affirming process. The making of profit for a business is the secondary purpose of business. And the work that we do addresses what I think is the primary purpose of business, which is to create value. The purpose of the primary purpose of business is to uplift the quality of life on the planet. Period. That's the primary purpose of li- uh, business: is to uplift the experience of being alive on this planet for everything that is touched by business activity. If I'm doing that well, I'm going to make a profit because mm-hmm. people like to be around life-affirming experiences. That's not the way business is conducted. I mean, you look at what's going on right now under the Trump administration around uh, the environment, around uh, financial deregulation. Um, just It's anything but life-affirming. It's anything but making choices and behaving in manners that uplift the experience of being alive on the planet for all that are you know, touched. There is nothing on this planet today that is not touched by the consequence of business's activities. I can be an oyster in the middle of the Puget Sound and my shell is dissolving because there's too much carbon in the water, you know, CO2 in the water. There's dead zones off the Pacific that are a consequence of oxygen depletion that is the consequence of fertilizer runoff. Yeah. There's nothing on this planet that escapes the consequence of business activities. Business has a moral as well as a fiduciary responsibility from my perspective to attend to that. And, you know, business is the most pervasive force on the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, it transcends governmental, it transcends um, uh, fiscal, it transcends just about any (laughs) entity that you can think of. Uh, Business can pretty much do anything, and it does do anything. What's the lodestone? What's the guiding principle here? If it's not, we have a soul. If it's not, we're, we're connected to everything. If it's not that... Uh, all bets are off. Mm-hmm. And that's where compassion comes in. And compassion in this sense has to do with the recognition that we are connected. That's mm-hmm. what compassion is about. It's a recognition that I am connected, we are connected, and what I do does have impact on what you experience and how you live. When you think about the, the definition of compassion, um, it's co, right? Or mm-hmm. calm? Calm. Calm. With, with with, Come with passion. Yeah. Now, the, yeah, you get some in, interesting etymology here. Uh, passion, Greek word, uh, sourced out of a Greek word, paschkos, uh, paschko, that meant to suffer. Okay, the passion of Christ yep. you know, is a good example of that. Now, the interesting thing about suffer, um, you, you look at the definition of suffer, it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with pain. It has to do with exposure, vulnerability. 
The passion of Christ, as an example here, was Christ being vulnerable, yeah, completely open, completely yeah, mm-hmm. available. Yeah. That exposure is what suffering is about. Uh, it doesn't have to be painful. I am at my most alive when I'm at my most open, when I'm at my most vulnerable. There's, and it really is a paradox. Um, what, yeah, uh, yeah, I experience my most aliveness, I experience my most connection, and my most fear when I'm completely open and available, completely open and available. And it's at that juncture that I want to be most compassionate. Hmm. You know, nature presents itself as an open, you know, it's open. If I'm not compassionate with nature, there's a problem mm-hmm. uh, with my spouse, with my kids. You know, when they express themselves you know, at their most open, they're vulnerable. And if I'm not compassionate, I can do great damage to the relationship. We do, as businesses, great damage to relationships all the time. And primarily, they're ecosystem relationships. But we also, you know, you know I mean, Bhopal with uh, um, Union Carbide years ago in India. I mean, I mean, there's all kinds of things that mm-hmm. we do that uh, we aren't, it's not malicious in the sense of premeditated, but it's malicious in the sense of it's unconscious. And this is where consciousness really does make a difference. I have to become aware. Awareness precedes choice. The more aware I can be, the more choices I have in front of me. Now, whether I take those choices or not is a question of compassion. Which, which one do I actually move towards? Is it in service of a profit motive or is it in service of creating value in the sense that I talk about value? Uplifting the quality and the experience of living on the planet. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do we become more compassionate? Practice. Mm-hmm. What are we practicing? I think it starts small. I think it, uh, I mean, I'd like to you know, say it happens on a global scale immediately, but I also am aware that systems move when pieces of the system start to change. Mm-hmm. Whole systems move when pieces of the system shift and hold that shift, mm-hmm. even in the face of pushback. So I think the way that we begin to do this is to start where we are with what we have in 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 make the case mm-hmm. for why that's important to me. So for someone listening who's in a cubicle, who's in um, a soulless workplace, <laughs> soulless man. <laughs> <laughs> How, where do you start? Where? What what can you say to that person? Yeah, I I I first of all I just yeah kind of look around. Yeah, this is what I, you know, what are you grateful for? I mean. One of the easiest ways that I can think of to jumpstart the ethos of compassion is to start with gratitude. Mm. Uh, What am I grateful for today? What am I grateful for as I sit here in my cubicle? What am I grateful for? Genuinely grateful. Not only for what I have, but for what I would love to have. I'm grateful. I mean, if I, and this kind of goes to the, the play of time. Gratitude implies that I already have it. I'm never grateful for something I don't have. So I start practicing. I'm grateful now that hmm. this has occurred. And I play with time in this sense. I'm grateful now that this future state already exists in my mind. I'm grateful now that this future state exists in my experience. And it's an imagined experience right now, but I'm grateful that this experience exists. In that sense of gratitude, 
uh, it presupposes the existence of reality. And this is where I begin behaving today as if the future are already here. Uh, I mean, Cynthia and I, my wife and I, you know, we joke about this uh, periodically. Yeah, it, it, whatever it is that we want to have, it's already happened. I just haven't gotten there yet. And it has. It's already, you know, the house that we're remodeling, it's already remodeled. We just haven't gotten there yet. This is just what it looks like as we're in process of getting there. So, you know, we hold that state. Yeah, I'm grateful now that, you know, this house is the way that I envision it being. I am so grateful now that this is, you know, I mean, that sort of a play. And it is play. I want to be playful with this. Life doesn't have to be so bloody serious. Oh, yes. (laughs) I can sit in a cubicle that is in a soulless organization and I can actually have fun and it will be contagious. Everything else is contagious. Why not have fun be contagious? Uh-huh. And, you know, start being a carrier. Yeah. <laughs> Contaminate somebody with your, with your joy. Why are you so happy? <laughs> <laughs> because, because I'm alive. What's, you know, why not? <laughs> I mean, I get about 85 years or so on this planet, maybe 90 if I'm lucky. And yeah, if I'm skating on thin ice, I may as well dance. So <laughs> there you go. I'm not getting out of here alive. Right. The ice is going to break at some point. At some point. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to fall through. And so I get, I, I get to have a choice. I, I, I mean, whether I, you know, assuming I keep breathing for another year, yeah, I'm going to have what I'm going to have. And it's going to be my choice about what that is in mm-hmm. terms of the experience. You know, the material result is going to be whatever it is. But my experience of living is up to me. My mm-hmm. experience of living is up to me. I love that. I'm going to use that um, house remodel Jedi trick mm-hmm. on my wife when I get home. It's already happened. It's already we just, here. <laughs> it's already here. We just haven't arrived. I love that. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it makes a big, honestly, Joel, it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's already, it takes the, it takes the anxiety out of it. Oh my God. Right. And, no, it's already here. We just haven't arrived yet. Well, honestly, uh, you know, when we talk about that for our own house, because our family's growing, right? Mm-hmm. So it's getting constrictive. So yeah. we're, we're imagining something more spacious, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and I'll I'll jump to, um, I'll I'll get defensive when that comes up because we don't have the resources to yeah. make it happen in this moment in while this we're having moment. this conversation. Yeah. That's using your current or your past experience to dictate what you're going to have in the future. The future is, there is an infinite number of ways that the future could be. I yeah, who says it can't be exactly the way I want it, irrespective of what I have today. My future doesn't have to be predicated on my current resource state in any way, shape, or form. I love that. Um, you said gratitude. Mm-hmm. That made me, um, it was, I was reminded of the four pillars mm. in, mm-hmm. in the book. So that's, yeah. that's step one of the pillars. Yeah. Can we run through those pillars? And then, and then I think we got to land the ship. Yep. Or land, land the plane? Land the plane. We got to park the boat? What park the boat. <laughs> yeah, more, more the boat, land the plane. <laughs> Catch the ferry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So we've got, yeah, gratitude, empathy. Empathy was two. Yeah. Yeah. Accountability and effective communication. So, yeah, out of those four, uh, gratitude for me is the bedrock. I mean, it is foundational to just about anything and everything that we do. Uh, yeah, you know, Cynthia and I wake up in the morning and we, you know, we have a daily practice. It's a gratitude practice. I, I write a list out every morning about what I'm grateful for. Hmm. And it's not just what I have today. It's what I'm grateful for. I'm, I'm grateful that this house is remodeled in the way that I want it to be. I'm grateful that I have the income that I want. Yeah. And we have an abundance of uh, client, you know, client interactions. 
I'm grateful for that. Now, it has nothing to do with what I have today. I'm just grateful for the fact that that exists in my life. Mm -hmm. And it does exist in my life. So gratitude is the starting point, And it presupposes that what I have, what I want, already exists. I just haven't arrived yet in some cases. That's a, that's a beautiful way to uh, move through the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we can collectively start doing this, then our imagination, our, our imagined future mm-hmm. will become the reality. Carl Jung said a long time ago, yeah, without the play of the imagination, nothing of consequence has ever been brought into form. So I want to play with my imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, be, yeah, and, and I'm, I'm grateful that I have an imagination. It's the one thing that, as far as I know, nobody else has. And I say nobody else. A tree doesn't have imagination. A rock doesn't have imagination. I get to create futures. I get to create, literally, uh, a reality that is unique to me through the play of my imagination. Hmm. And I can call it in. Yeah, I live from that, and it manifests. There's a difference between creation and manifestation in that regard. That's the emerging future. That's the emerging future. Man, Blaine, th- thanks for having me out here. Oh, yeah. I love, I love these conversations. Me I too. Do. I do. I really do. And, and I hope this isn't the last. Oh, like, I do too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. No, you, you come on down. This is a joy. Okay, we'll be here. <laughs> um, Bring your kids. How... How can people uh, get a hold of you? What's the, what's the best way for people to reach you? Yeah, a couple of ways. Uh, BlaineBartlett.com uh, is the personal website. Avatar Resources, uh, one word, .com is the company site. And then, um, yeah, my blog. I uh, keep a blog, uh, IdealsInMotion.com. Uh, uh, that's just some you know, musings and you know, writings that I do periodically. I'll, I'll put something up about once a month or so. You know, just okay. kind of ideas that I have kicking around. And then, you know, the, you know, you've got this podcast. Uh, I'm going to be doing a new podcast called The Soul of Business uh, that'll be out, uh, you know, probably in the next quarter. And we're going to start doing some stuff with that as well. Great. So um, are you doing, do you do, like when you write a book, do you do like a book tour? Or yeah. Did you do one? Yeah, I did one. Uh, most of it was, uh, you know, we did a, a brief one here. We did, we did a soft launch here in the U.S. Uh, I did a major tour in Asia. Okay. Uh, you do a lot of work over there, right? Yeah, I do. I, I kind of sense that from poking around on your sites. Yep. Uh, yeah, I've been in Asia since uh, the early 80s, and, yeah, uh, Japan and China. What's the connection there? Just the re- relationships, that, relationships. You've, that you've built? Yeah. Um, I was wondering, though, is there is there like a, a consciousness over there that is, um, is, is more ripe for compassionate capitalism? Yes, a short version. Um, Japan in particular, um, I've, I've, yeah, I, I love working in Japan. It's, mm. you know, they, they understand relationships in a way that uh, I, I find a lot of Western organizations don't. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of business success over there is predicated on qu- high-quality relationships. So this whole notion uh, does land fairly well with them. Um, China's a different, different animal. It's... Uh, it's, I mean, they've only really had an open market economy for the last 25, maybe 30 years at the most. And it's the Wild West in a lot of ways. Mm. That being said, the current government um, is really, you know, and I've, I've given some lectures over there. I'm, on, I'm, I'm part of the adjunct faculty at uh, Beijing University. 
And the government is very intent on making sure that uh, the way capitalism was developed doesn't happen here, it was developed here, doesn't happen over there. And I don't mean that from an economic or from a political uh, orientation. I mean it from, you know, there, there's a recognition that with 1.2 billion people, they've got finite resources. They need to they need to develop markets. They need to develop businesses that are paying attention to recyclability, not disposability. Mm-hmm that they are developing markets and businesses that are paying attention to the creation of value in the sense that uh, I'm, I'm speaking about it, which is about uplifting the experience of being alive yeah, uh, on the planet. So there, there's more attention, I think, being objectively paid to that. And I, I gave a lecture to a group of uh, entrepreneurs at a startup uh, incubator uh, when I was on my last trip there. And these folks, I mean, they absolutely were all over this notion. Hmm. They, they, yeah, it resonated with them. They understood it. Um, they could see the value in operating a business from this tenant, mm-hmm. and and yeah, I mean, the government is you know, providing, I think, something like ten point four billion dollars for startups. I mean, wow. China is going to be China is going to be crazy uh, in the next decade or two hmm. uh, for, as an economic force. Um, that that just reminded me of one of the things in the book that I thought was really interesting. Um, to your point about you know they're they're ready, their consciousness is is ready for what what you're bringing uh-huh. forward. And the point in the book of, about uh, the interconnectivity of the relationships around the planet, you know, with the internet, mm-hmm. is is actually creating that yeah. connective consciousness that we need to move forward yeah. in a compassionate way. Yeah, at, at the wor- at the wor- at the risk of being hyper- hyperbolic here, I mean a hive. You know, I mean it's, it's kind of a hive mentality. Mm-hmm. I mean the, the interconnectivity, the rate and speed of communication, um, the the rate. I mean the the volume, uh, the 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 size of the net. That's the word I'm looking for here, and the speed with which information gets exchanged today. Information used to be a premium, mm-hmm. and if you had access to information, that was the way that you made things happen. It's ubiquitous today. You know, people can get anything at any time, anywhere. Yeah. Literally. I mean, I can be out in the middle of uh, the Serengeti, you know, with my smartphone, and I've got access immediately to information and data. Mm-hmm. And that, I mean, that this is the first time in human history that that's ever happened. And the consequence of that is profound. It really is in terms of level setting, in terms of... Um, leveling the playing field mm-hmm. um, and just a lot of things you know, come out of that well uh, for everybody who's still hanging with us <laughs> <laughs> Blaine Bartlett here and his book his most recent book uh, Compassionate Capitalism A Journey to the Soul of Business A Journey to the Soul of Business great title <laughs> great subtitle um, I highly recommend picking that up because um, it will give you a more expanded sense of of business and and the work that you're doing. So thanks, Blaine. Ah, Joel, my pleasure. I absolutely have loved the conversation. Talk to you soon. You bet. I told you that was going to be good. Isn't Blaine great? Like I said in the beginning, you need to pick up this book. Compassionate Capitalism. Give it a read. Give Blaine some feedback too. I'm sure he'd love to hear from you. Um, but uh, it's a it's a game changer. So definitely pick that up and and read that. Oh, and the other thing, 
is, you know, when I was saying that we named our house Hedgebrook. Yeah, it's not Hedgebrook. <laughs> it's Hedgewood. Okay, so kind of had a brain fart while I was talking there, and it is uh, it's Hedgewood. So, um, yeah, that was. I, d- I cringed when I heard that <laughs> when I listened back to our conversation. So, Hedgewood, if you ever want to come visit me in Seattle, you will be visiting Hedgewood. All right, everybody. Until next time, talk to you soon.